0: Uh, As we look at Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5 this morning, I'm going to read chapter 3, verse 5 through verse 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of the truth, the gospel. what is it for you that makes you feel like new you know is it just taking a dip in the pool or a nice shower a new hairstyle or a new outfit getting a morning out on the boat or going hiking in the woods finally getting a good night's sleep you know we use that phrase i feel like a new person Uh, We use it when we feel refreshed, when we feel invigorated or clear-headed. And if that's what our understanding of the new self is that we carry into this passage of Scripture, then we will miss the point of this passage of Scripture. Because as nice as it is dropping a few pounds when we're on a diet, or learning a new skill, or experiencing something that invigorates us and makes us feel like new— it falls short of what Paul is actually describing here as the new self. It makes me think of a caterpillar and a butterfly. A butterfly, despite what I thought when I was young, is not simply a caterpillar with wings. And when that caterpillar goes in and forms the chrysalis and hangs there for however long, it's not just sprouting wings off the body that already existed. No, if you're not familiar, what what happens in the chrysalis is that the body of the caterpillar completely dissolves into goo if you were to cut up on the chrysalis which i do not recommend a caterpillar doesn't come out goo comes out it has dissolved into a gooey substance which then reforms into an entirely new creature and out comes the butterfly christian in the same way your faith is not merely adding on something tacking on wings to a caterpillar Things that were previously missing before you had Christ. Take my life, Lord, and add to it a little bit of hope, some morality, and some peace. And voila, I'm a new person. No, that's that's not how it works. The new self is not just a collection of new habits, new looks, and new experiences. It is a new being, a new person entirely. You died to the world in Christ. And now all that is worldly in you must die. And be replaced by the new life in Christ. And one of our problems as Christians is that we don't recognize or come to grips with with how new we are. How much we have actually changed in Christ. And because of that we don't live out the newness that we have. And we become complacent. We become content to just live the life we have. And maybe, maybe add on a little bit of a new habit here and there. Or a new look now and then. We are complacent, and as we study these verses, we'll see that the new life that we have in Christ is necessary, and it is a process, and it is a gift. Let's start by looking how the new life, the new self, is necessary. If you were with us last week as we were looking at the previous passage, you may remember that the main idea of those verses was that we should set our mind on things above and not on earthly things. Now, continuing from that thought, Paul gets practical. How do we do that? How do we fix our mind on things above and not on things that are earthly? In verse 5, he says, well, simply put to death whatever is earthly in you. That phrase, put to death, is literally to kill as the Puritans said, to mortify. Don't let it live in you. Don't feed it. Don't listen to it. Don't give it room to grow. And what are these earthly things that we are to kill? Verse 5 goes on. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Then in verse 8, he lists more. Anger. Wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, a, a lineup of some usual suspects, things that we're, we know are wrong and we should avoid and do away with. But then there's some things that maybe take us a little bit by surprise. Like, for example, that last phrase, covetousness. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Have you thought of it? I would love for you to meditate on that this week and to talk about it with those in your life and to ask how... How is it that I am being idolatrous if I am coveting something? You know, when you look at something that's not yours, something that someone else has, whether it's their marriage, their family, their, uh, their stage of life, their lifestyle, their job, a vehicle, a home, a computer device, whatever they have, that you look at and you think, I need that. I, the reason I'm not happy is I don't, I don't have that. If I had that, I would be happy. That's coveting. And that's idolatry because what you're doing is saying God is not able to make me happy. I'm not looking to God to satisfy me, to give me peace, to give me joy, to give me hope, to give me fulfillment. I'm trusting this, which I may never have, but I'm convinced that this will give me happiness. This will give me peace. My brothers and sisters, that's idolatry. That is turning your hopes and your belief and your faith to something else other than God. Covetousness. There's a difference, though, between being tempted by these things and feeding them. Paul describes in verse 7, he says, In these two you once walked when you were living in them. You know, child of God, you may still be tempted by these things and at times fail and sin, but do not make a habit of these things. Don't be living in them. Don't let them typify your life. Because the new self is necessary. In verse 6, he says that on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. When Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you, he means stop giving it your thought. Stop giving it your time. Stop giving it action and devotion to things that God will one day punish. It reminded me of uh, An experience I had many years ago, I was visiting, when I was in college, I was visiting a friend at another college, and when we got to her campus, she was uh, taking the group of us that were visiting her, she was taking us to her dorm, and we were having to step over and around all this geese poop, is that how I would say it, goose droppings, maybe? Okay, just what you wanted to hear about on a Sunday morning. You know, we're having to dodge these goose droppings and these feathers, and there are these wild crazy aggressive geese all around the place and she's just saying yeah we hate these things they're just always bothering us they're always in the way they're always making a mess but you know what can we do do you know what we did later that afternoon she brought a loaf of bread out and we went down to the lake and we fed the geese (laughs) because that's what everybody did you know and I couldn't help but wonder if if you hate them so much why are you feeding them (laughs) Why are you encouraging them to stay? Why are you giving them room to flourish in your world? And Christian, we do the same thing. These things that we ought to be putting to death, we feed and we nourish and we give them room to grow. Am I putting covetousness to death when I spend all my time scrolling through somebody's social media feed and feeling covetousness for their life that I don't have? Or when I'm adding item after item to my Amazon wish list that I will never have the resources to buy, and yet looking and staring and thinking and dreaming about the day when I have that? Am I really putting covetousness to death? Or am I putting malice away when someone hurts me, offends me, and instead of forgiving them or going to them and dealing with it, I instead go to someone else. Can you believe what he said to me? Oh, man, I would love to give him a piece of my mind. You know, we really should pray for him. Because if he's talking like that to me, who knows how he's talking to other people? Am I putting my malice to death or am I giving it room to grow? Am I nurturing it and feeding it? The new self is necessary. So we have to put these things to death, but that's only half the story. Because Paul's using some interesting terminology to describe this. In verse 8, he says, Now you must put them all away. And in verse 9, he says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Those words, uh, put away and put off, are are describing taking off a garment and and just tossing it aside. I'm probably not going to be able to get this back on easily, am I? It's language specific to garments. Removing a dirty garment and throwing it away to the side. Like going into a teenager's room. And seeing every article of clothing they've worn in the past 10 days. Just strewn all over. Dirty. But removed and tossed aside. Okay, you don't want to see that in a teenager's room. But that's what you need to do in your Christian life. Is you remove these things and you throw them away. But you don't just stand there naked after that. In verse 10, he says you put on the new self. In verse 12, he says put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, And patience, that word put on, is language that describes getting dressed, putting on a robe or a jacket, clothe yourself, put these things on. That's why the new self is necessary. It's not enough to take off the old, you have to put on the new. Jesus describes for us in Matthew 12 why it's not enough to put off the old. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house, being a person. I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. We looked at this a number of months ago as we were going through Matthew's gospel. And we talked about that vivid imagery of a spirit leaving, An evil spirit leaving a person, and then what do they do? They sweep up, they clean up, they make the house nice and neat, but nothing else comes in and replaces the evil that was there. The Spirit of God does not replace the evil spirit that had left. And therefore, when the evil spirit comes back, it says, hey, what a nice place. There's plenty of room for me and all my friends. I'm going to take this empty space in your life, and though you've swept it clean with morality, with getting all this bad stuff out, I'm going to replace it with judgmentalism and pride. And I'm going to take all that good stuff that you do, and I'm going to turn it into evil. Because you haven't replaced the old with the new. And there is still room for sin to take residence. We saw this recently as we were looking in Colossians chapter 2, verse 23 talking about these restrictive practices of saying no to stuff, have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If all you eat is junk food, it's not enough to stop eating the junk. You know, I try to kick my fast food habit, but if I'm not eating something else, I'm just going to be hungry and I'm going to go back to what fulfilled me before. Or an alcoholic who has a habit of going out and drinking after work with friends. It's not enough to just say, I'm going to stop doing that and I'm going to stop being around those people. Because that creates a void in your life. A house swept clean and put in order that is still looking for a resident. No, she would need to replace that time in her schedule. And that group of people in her life with a different habit and a different community. It's not enough to stay away from the sinful things. We have to grow in godly behaviors. Being a child of God is not simply a matter of avoiding the evil. We don't become holy by the process of elimination. And by that I mean, well, I'll eliminate these words from my life. And I will eliminate uh, these people from my life and I will eliminate this kind of movie from my life, and I'll eliminate these habits from my life, and eventually, once I've eliminated the bad stuff, I will be the person God wants me to be. That's not how holiness works. That's taking off the old, sure, but we're not putting on the new. Verse 17, Paul says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Everything you do, Not just the churchy spiritual things like Sunday morning or tithing or praying or reading the Bible. Good things. Those aren't the only things that we do to glorify God. Everything you do needs to come from the thankful, joyful expression of living before the God who made you. Doing it in the name of Jesus according to what he desires. Looking at your job. Looking at your schoolwork looking at that toilet you've got to clean at home, looking at your hobbies, looking at how you spend your free time, and recognizing that in everything is the kingdom of God. And if what you're doing is not something that God can delight in, then you cannot do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Now God can delight in you going out on the boat And having time with your friends and enjoying nature. God can delight in you throwing around a ball with your kids. God can delight in enjoying a movie or TV show that is is good. God can delight in a lot of things. But you have to be able to do it with a conscience that says, yes, in this is the Lord's delight and I am giving thanks to God for this. And I'm doing it in the name of Jesus. To do that though, it's necessary to put on the new self, not just take off the old, but to put on the new. And that is our second point, a process. The new self is a process. One thing I appreciate about the book of Colossians as we've been looking at it is that in some parts it's in the abstract heights of metaphysics and the universe, the nature of God in Christ, the creation of the world, the epistemology of how we know what's true, how the universe is sustained and held together, but it always comes back to the practical. The notion of putting on the new self is not just some abstract thought, it's not just a churchy spiritual phrase, It's a day-to-day practice, a process, not something we do once and we're done, like my kids like to think about getting dressed each week. My kids would like to wear the same thing every day, and to bed, and in the pool, and wherever they go. I'm already dressed, Dad. You need to get dressed again, okay? That's why I like the clothing imagery here that Paul is using, because putting on the new self is not a once and done. It's a process that we take part in. And there's two main things about that process in this passage that I want us to look at. Number one, it's done in community. And number two, it's done through God's word. First, the new self is a process that we undertake in a community. You are not meant to be a Lone Ranger Christian. You alone are not by yourself the bride of Christ. Scripture teaches that Jesus gave his life for the church. He lays down his life, Scripture says, for the bride. He is the head of the whole body. He shepherds the flock. He is the king of a kingdom. Do you see how all these illustrations Scripture gives us of the saving and leading work of Christ are are images of a community of people. Not a collection of individuals, but a group of people living and working together. And the process of putting on the new self is not something that we do alone. Rather, we do it with the help of the people in our church. We do it surrounded by the community that is directing that process, leading that process, encouraging us in that process, helping us in that process. Look how Paul describes it. The process of putting on the new self in verses 13 through 15. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you all were called in one body. And be thankful. Putting on the new self is described in terms of how we relate to other people. Especially how we relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ. The new self is not primarily a matter of learning right doctrine. It's not primarily a matter of having the right practices and spiritual disciplines of reading scripture and praying every morning and doing this and that. It's not a matter of having the right emotional state when you're worshiping and praying and singing. All those are good All those are good, don't hear me wrong. But that's not what makes the new self. The look of the new self is something we see in community. Because let's be honest, it's much, much, much easier to be holy when we don't have to deal with other people. Right? I am an excellent, excellent husband. Until I'm with my wife. (laughs) Okay? And I am a loving and patient and wise father until I'm really dealing with my kids. And just the same, we can think of ourselves as holy people, as patient people, as generous people, as merciful, kind people, until we actually have to interact with someone else that tests our patience, that challenges our humility, that strains our mercy and compassion, right? And so that process of putting on the new self has to be done with real other people. But it's also a process guided by God's word. We see in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in y'all. And I say y'all because I don't want you to hear that word you and mistake that for singular. He's saying, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you all. It's plural. Teaching and admonishing one another. In all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Leave that verse up there because I want to keep pointing out things there. First of all, notice that the word of God is ministered. It comes to us through the community of God's people, not just one person, not just one moment during the week. If you think that you are getting enough of God's word by sitting here on Sunday morning and hearing someone preach... You are starving yourself of the rich banquet of God's word that he desires for you. Be intentional about finding ways to surround yourself with God's people. And notice it's not one person. It's teach and admonish one another. The pastor is not the only person. The elders of this church are not the only people who minister the words of God to you. Each and every one of you is equipped to minister the word of God, to speak an encouraging word, to share what God has taught you, to remind somebody of a passage of Scripture. We minister the word of God to one another. But notice also, as a side note I would say, that music and singing is a very important part of that. Music is very important to teach us anything. How many of you can still remember songs that you were taught as a child? How many of you can remember a song that taught you uh, the states and their capitals or the alphabet or, or some, some bit of factual information that is lodged in your brain because you learned it as a song? Okay, we, we minister the word of God to one another. The word of God dwells richly in us partly through our singing The singing of psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and that's one of the reasons that we in this church are very diligent to make sure that the songs we sing are consistent with and teach us the truth of the Word of God. But the Word is what guides us and shapes us in the putting on of our new self. The Word of God in that way serves as an assembly guide, as a set of instructions for what we are to become. Verse 10, Paul says, The new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The word of God teaches us what Jesus is like, and in doing so, shows us what we are to become, shows us the type of person we're to become. those who have been around a while and have heard me talk about this know that I was indoctrinated from a very young age by my father that if we got anything a furniture set, a new toy, an electronic device, anything I was not allowed to touch it until I had thoroughly read the instructions. Okay, and I, I carry that with me. My kids get frustrated because we pull out a board game and I'm like, no, now you have to sit here for 30 minutes. Well, I read the instructions and learn how to play this game. I'm big on instructions. Okay, I still carry that with me, and I get frustrated. This happened to me not long ago when you know somebody was trying to install something in my home, and I'm following along the instructions with with somebody who who thinks they knows what they're doing. They know what they're doing. I'm not talking about my wife. Don't worry. So yeah, you know, <laughs> nobody at this church. <laughs> you know, they were installing something electronic in my home, which I, I defer to anybody when it comes to that sort of thing. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm following the instructions, and I'm going you. You're skipping something. And sure enough, we had to undo it and go back and do it the way the instructions said. Because what happens is the scripture is the instructions. And it gives us, if you can imagine the picture on the box of what we're trying to create, is Christ. And scripture is the instructions that shows us how to get to that point. How we can be made into Christ because what we're assembling here is you. You are the thing under construction. Me, you, all of us, we are being built up according to the word of God by the community, the people of God, into the image of Christ. And that's a process that we all undergo. As scripture shows us in Romans 8, those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into what image? Into the image of his son. So as a Christian, you don't instantly become the complete new self. You grow, you develop, you take shape through a daily, daily process. A few things follow from that. Number one, be slow to judge or condemn another. For we are all in that process. From the youngest believer to the most aged and venerable saint among us. We still need to put on the new self every day. So do not judge one another, but rather encourage and admonish one another through God's word. The other thing to remember is to engage the process. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Why deny yourself opportunities to be shaped by the word of God through the people of God? Let the word dwell in you richly. Don't just read it yourself. But hear, read, study, discuss, and apply it in the community that God has given you for your good and for your growth. It's the new self. It's necessary and it is a process. Lastly and briefly, we're going to see the new self is a gift. One of the ways we see that is in verse 12. Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. The new self is something we put on because we are chosen by God and holy. God isn't waiting to see if we will become something new. God has already chosen us and determined that we are new. He has made us new. He's given us that gift of newness. Now this starts to sound like a contradiction or a catch 22, doesn't it? We work to become holy because we're already holy. We daily put on the new self that he's already given us and we already have on. Like how does, is it the chicken or is it the egg? Which, which one? Hebrews 10 puts the, the problem this way, same idea. By a single offering, Christ has perfected, already done, perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. You are being sanctified. You are in a process that Christ has already completed on your behalf. How does that work? Well, we're getting into familiar but confusing territory, touching on the idea of those things that are already true and not yet true of us. Jesus has made us holy forever, made us perfect, given us the new self. And yet in another sense, he expects us to grow in grace and to be daily sanctified, to be renewed. The point is, God has already, already chosen his children and declared them holy. That's a great foundation to build on. What God is calling you to do This perhaps at times overwhelming need that we have to put on the new self and to do things that are hard. God has already said, I've chosen you and declared it done. I'm just telling you to go out and express what I've made true of you already. I have promised you it will not fail because I've already determined it. That's a great foundation to build on. What that means is that that putting on the new self is not a finish line that you're struggling to get to. Putting on the new self is the starting line. It's where you and I begin. God has already given you a new self. And he says, now go forth and live that new self. Put it on every day. Express it. Live it because I've already chosen you to be holy and I've declared it's done and what God has determined will not fail. That's good news. It's like we said in our confession of faith this morning. I think I have one somewhere. Yes. Our confession of faith, which is taken from, from 2 Peter chapter 1, so it's not on the screens, but if you have your worship guide, you can see that it begins, we believe that God's divine power has, already, has given us everything we need for life and godly living. So that's the new self that is given. It's a gift. Therefore, we make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue, our virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control and so on. On the basis of what God has given us, we strive, we struggle, we work, we undertake the process of putting on the new self. But it begins not with dangling out in front of us, maybe someday you'll be new. It begins with, I've already made you new. I've declared you holy, you are my chosen ones. Another way we see this idea of the new self as a gift is in verses 10 through 11. The new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. The diversity of the Colossian church created problems for them. They had members of their church who were uh, born and raised faithful, devout Jews, uh, circumcised, trained in the law, adhering to the dietary regulations. And then you had those who were pagan idol worshipers and had just converted to the God of Israel. Very different people. You had highly educated people, you had completely uneducated people. You had people who were slaves, you had people who were merchants, you had foreigners, you had locals, you had people from different races and backgrounds and languages, and naturally when people come together like that, our fleshly human tendency is to judge and look at one another according to those things that the world says matters most. Who you are, where your identity comes from. Oh, it's these things, it's your background, it's your race, it's your your status, it's your career, it's your achievements. And Paul says, no, there's none of that here. Christ is all. Christ is in all. That human tendency to compare ourselves and to boast in what society uses to determine who you are should have no place among God's people. Jeremiah 9, thus says the Lord. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. The new self is a gift that is given to you. Your identity, your value is not something you determine, and it's not something you create, and it's not something that society defines. Identity is given to you by God. Your identity is a gift from God. If you are in Christ, you are a new self. Second Corinthians 5, Paul says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. That word flesh is not physical body. It, it speaks of the worldly way of seeing things and understanding things. We regard no one the way the world does. Even though we once regarded Christ that way, we, do no, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. Do you see what that's saying? God has given a gift. He has given the gift of a new identity, a new self. There is no longer circumcised, uncircumcised, Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. None of that is who you are. God has given you who you are. And it is Christ. That self, that new self, which is a necessity, is given to you because you are a new creation from God. A verse that I come to at least once a month in this pulpit Ezekiel 36. God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. As a Christian, on the basis of God's gift of the new self, you shouldn't be able to say, I can't do it. When it comes to what God has called you to do and to be, when it comes to this idea of putting on the new self, putting away malice, anger, slander, envy, covetousness, impurity, all those things, the Christian does not have the option of saying, I can't do it. Because God has given you His Spirit. And His Spirit will cause you to walk in His statutes and be careful to obey His rules. He has given you the new self and the power to put on the new self day by day. So when faced with temptation or addiction, changes in attitude and action that seem overwhelming, you are already able to do it because of what God has given you. Just to wrap up here, I was thinking of um, uh, in 1519, the explorer Hernán Cortez. When he arrived in Mexico with hundreds of men intent on settling the land, you might be familiar with what Cortes did to motivate his men. He burned the ships. Okay, can you imagine being one of his men? <laughs> what he was doing was sending a message. And, and you know, though we cannot endorse or approve of or agree with his conquest, what we can agree and admire is his commitment. He burned the ship saying, going back to the life that was before is not an option for us. We are in a new world and we will live a new life. This is the only option before you. Christian, you have been given a new life. And the message for you is you don't go back to a worldly way of living. You don't go back to harboring grudges to acting and speaking in malice, to slandering one another, to feeding your lusts, to coveting after things that you don't need. You don't go back to that. The ships have been burned. You've been given a new life. And the gospel is that because Jesus died in your place and rose again, you're now in that new world already. You're not striving to get there. You're there. And because the ships are burned and you're in the new world now, it is up to you to live that new life. The phrase we use here is that we live out the gospel together. I think that beautifully sums up this passage. The gospel is that new life is given to you. The process is you need to live it out, and you don't do it alone. You do it together with God's people, ministering the word of God to one another as we all grow up and are shaped into the image of Christ. As we're about to sing in a moment, my chains fell off, my heart was free. That's the new life you've been given. So what follows? What follows the chains falling off and the heart set free? I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Daily putting on the new self, living what is true of the new life. The prisoner has been freed. The ships have been burned. The dead has been raised to a new world. From here on out, live. Live out those truths and don't go back to what came before. And by the power of the Spirit of God that He has given us, we will do so. Let us pray for the strength and the wisdom to do that. We thank You, Heavenly Father, for Your Holy Spirit that equips us and enables us to live the reality of these things. We thank You that You have given us a new self, that You equip us to live that truth. And You give us not only Your Spirit, You give us the body of Christ, that we may minister the Word of God to one another, encourage one another on in love and good deeds, strengthen one another, support one another, as we lift up and exalt the head which is Christ. We do this with thankful hearts to the glory of our God and Father of Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.